really like to talk, be able to talk to someone like yourself who actually understands this stuff at this this level. Um, and and so uh, in within the psychiatric community uh, to catch back up with uh, the video is is that the the thinking disorder and the feeling disorder the the thinking disorder is normally psychiatric uh, excuse me uh, schizophrenia uh, borderline uh, uh, you know all of those terms is how far over the line they've gone and then those who haven't gone over the line yet they call it a feeling disorder or a neurosis so the thinking disorder and the feeling disorder. And basically what the teachings of the Buddha are is, is that it's all a thinking feeling disorder and that the labels come with the symptoms and the severity of how badly we uh, are confused about how we can change. That in fact, the, the point that they're, that they're making about uh, that depression and anxiety are often ex both exhibited in the same individual. In fact, I will say this, that I have recently, for some strange reason, gotten a hold of the medical records of the facility that my mother was in. Mm -hmm. They had labeled her as both depressive and anxiety. And yet in the interviews, they talk about how cheerful she is. Mm -hmm. Well, if she is cheerful in the interviews, then where are they getting this diagnosis of uh, depression and anxiety other than it's just thrown in? I mean, we got we were paid almost by the word. <laughs> so mm. we'll just throw a couple of extras in there too, to where my mother, I knew her for many, many years. Mm. And How long ago she, was that? And that, uh, oh, well, dementia, yes. Uh, <clears throat> oh, all, you know, all the, the words that uh, dementia is an old word. Uh, senile, uh, another word, um, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It seems like every few years they change the label that they use, but people have had, you know, uh, their brains gone missing <laughs> it mm -hmm. late in life uh, for a long, long time. So that was, uh, but she was still cheerful. So she mm -hmm. wasn't a feeling disorder. And yet um, anxiety and depression are often a, labeled as a, as a feeling disorder because they're cognitive. You can hold a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. Well, see, could not hold a conversation with my mother. In fact, it was frustrating to be around her because she would keep asking the same few questions over and over again. And you just answered it. You just gave her a long, complex, easy to understand answer. And the next thing that comes to mind is that same question again. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the signs of dementia. That's easy mm -hmm. to understand. <clears throat> and you it did not, and, and so we know that that has to do with deterioration of the brain. In fact, that's often the word that's used. Dementia and deterioration of the brain, that there's something in old age that actually goes yeah, south. Yeah, so basically like uh, Alzheimer's describes the uh, biological change in the brain. Mm -hmm. it's, exactly. It's not the only disease that causes dementia, but one of them. And dementia just means like how it manifests, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. You're you're the doctor on this. I'm just you know I've just been standing by and watching all of this stuff happening and picking up a few labels from that from time to time. But for me, 
senility, dementia, and Alzheimer's are basically the same thing because of the uh, behavioral. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, there's, there's, uh, going there's in, cutting the brain open and seeing which went up, which part of it went south. <laughs> I think that we'll leave that to the neurologist. Yeah, sure. Um, so the um, the point is then that if we work in it in both directions of both the thought disorder and the feeling disorder together, then we can make the same progress regardless of what their symptoms are. That the Dhamma is the same Dhamma, it's a one size fits all. Now, the little questions about when do they go home, that's a different story, uh, those kind of decisions. But uh, the diagnostic codes uh, are basically uh, a, more of a description of the symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. Cause. Yeah, yeah. And so what the Buddha is going to is the cause. In fact, that's the uh, the second noble truth is what is the cause of all of this stuff that happens. And all of this stuff that happens uh, in the Buddha's language is uh, it, it can be described as dissatisfaction. Though when people do are in a state of dissatisfaction a lot, you could call it suffering. But the word dukkha was long wrongly translated as suffering because most dukkha is not suffering. It's just dissatisfaction. And so the, there's a cause for this dissatisfaction and it's the same cause with everyone. And, and the number one cause is ignorance, except that that's also a bad translation. It's not so much ignorance, it's that it's delusion. The word ajiva does not necessarily mean um, not knowing. Mm -hmm. What it actually means is knowing wrongly or knowing Thinking, not. Thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, a thinking disorder. And we all have thinking disorders. And the primary one with the depression and anxiety is the issue of I can't get rid of it on my own. I cannot change. And that the uh, um, uh, our society then you could go, you could possibly could go so far as to say that almost everyone could be diagnosed as depressive anxiety disorder. The question is, do you put the disorder in it? And the answer to that is sometimes. That we could put that label on everybody. Just some of it have it deeper than others. Some of them have more anxiety. In fact, the issue, the thing that's really funny is, is that people who begin to practice meditation correctly begin to see the anxiety they didn't even know was there and didn't yeah. exhibit itself. It didn't have any symptoms and yet when they look closely, they're on fire inside. And they haven't noticed that they're feeling that way. And that feeling has to do with the feeling of, uh, and the thoughts of helplessness, that I can't help it. Have you ever heard of Eric Byrne, especially in context of the OK Corral? Mm, no. OK. His OK Corral, he was a student of Freud. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, he was also the big, uh, the one who founded the the technique called transactional analysis that has that takes the ego, superego, and id out of Freud and puts mm. it to parent, adult, and child. I think that you probably heard that much about it. Yeah. Okay. To where what's happening in the dialogue in our mind is normally a dialogue between the critical parent and the child. Now, the Buddha talks about this in the sense of sila bhata paramasa, or a set of rules that we have. In other words, we grow up as children picking up society's rules. Some of us more effective than others. Unfortunately, the more effective a child is, is picking up rules along the way, the more miserable he's going to be in his life because the more rules he has to follow and gets caught breaking in his own mind. And so that sets up a disorder that you could talk about in language of going from guilt to resentment, from wanting revenge to feeling guilty. And that's the, those are the feelings that we use or have when we don't do what we're told to do. The other option is to go along to get along, to do what we are told to do and not like it. So with the set of rules that we carry around, we've got three choices. We can either be a dumb animal or we could be in one kind of hell or another in the sense of revenge. I've got to go get revenge. That would be the Asura. And the other one is the guilt, which has to do with uh, kind of being dissatisfied, uh, uh, feel like you being need to be punished even. So this is kind of a hell state that you're actually being punished because you haven't done what you were told to do as opposed to rebelling against the authority. And so all of this stuff can be seen with just one mechanism uh, within the mind of having a whole bunch of rules. So the Buddha is saying, wake up to these rules. Figure out which rules you want to follow and figure out which rules that you have that we don't match up, match up to that cause this complex. The complex of failure. Or do it, but don't like it. I mean, this is how, why people have jobs mostly. Our, our society has tricked our children into going to school to get an education so that they can get a job because our society teaches if you don't work, you don't eat. And yet we can easily go around pointing out people by the millions who don't work and eat. There's all kinds of setups where people don't work. I mean, you even work at an institution where there's a whole crowd of people who figured out they don't have to work and they can eat just fine. All they have to do is just stay locked up. <laughs> but our society teaches you've got to go out and work. And by the way, your work is more important than your life. In other words, you're supposed to do a job that you don't enjoy. Now, there, here's the thing is, is that in our society, they also talk about, well, why should you do a job that you don't enjoy? Why don't you do a job that you will enjoy? And that's backwards. The teaching of the Buddha is if you're going to do something, do it with gusto, do it with joy. 
If you don't do it with joy, it ain't worth doing. And so instead of going around trying to find something that you do want to do that you would enjoy, why don't you figure out how to enjoy what you're already doing? That's the easy thing. <laughs> and so um, it's all about the d delusion. So one of the delusions that we live with in our society, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that drives how many people crazy? Probably about 90%. <laughs> to where in Thailand, for instance, they have a different attitude. And that is, is that, oh, your family will take care of you. There is enough here for everyone. Why don't you go do something? Or we need your help. Will you come plant? Then off you go. And then later, oh, we need somebody to help harvest. But now that they've got machines, they don't need so much of that. And so... Um, there are actually families who will each one have an apartment in Bangkok. And during the certain seasons of the year, there are so many people sleeping in that room in Bangkok that it completely covers the floor. They have to sleep in shifts because that how mm. many people in that family came wow. to Bangkok for the uh, uh, the long holidays. And so they have a completely different attitude about work that family business is more important than work. But in the United States, people will leave their family to go to college. And when they go to college, they'll never return. They'll go get a job in Seattle or some distant city because the work is more important than family. And if we don't have any family or of support, then where are we going to get that support? Because the people we're working for, working with, they don't have any support either. They don't know how to be friends. So we wind up having a huge profession, a professional system that goes from social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists and making it a medical problem and a social problem and all of that kind of stuff. And if you had a functional family you lived in, you wouldn't have that. The reason we have social workers is because our families are dysfunctional. Which means that the children who were raised in that dysfunctional family are going to then live adult as adults in a dysfunctional family. And where is it that we can start to make a change with that? The answer to that is on an individual level because we can't change the society but individuals can make a huge change in their own lives. That's the teachings of the Buddha. Now, is this is where this is coming in, is to begin to wake up to all of these rules that we carry around and recognize how much discomfort and dissatisfaction we have because we have all of these ways about how things should be, that we're constantly wanting to improve it. Now, in the old, old days, medical science had a long way to go. But in the past few years, it's gotten more and more and more sophisticated. Oftentimes, it's gotten so sophisticated that it's more than any one particular person can handle. And so you don't have much of a generalist anymore. You've got specialties. And those specialties will break off into more specialties because they've gotten so good at it, except that 
they know they can keep people alive longer, but they don't know how to make them happy yet. This is the problem is, is that we don't have that. And in fact, we could say, oh, but that's the job of religion. <laughs> Except the religion is not doing a very good job of it at all. Here's an example of that. The me it's a medical issue, a medical problem is birth, conception, birth, etc., like that. Gestation, pregnancies, all of that has always been a major medical problem. The Buddha's mother died right after his birth. He was breech, so it appears. And so um, medical science just wasn't up to snuff, hasn't been for centuries. So religion came in and took over the job. Oh, we're going to regulate this medical issue by making a bunch of rules we call morality about sexuality. And now that medical science has come far enough to take over their job again, the religious nutcakes won't let go of something that doesn't belong to them anyway. It was always a medical issue. They tried to solve a medical issue by making it a religious issue. Now it remains a religious issue when in fact it should not be a religious issue at all. It's actually just a medical issue. But now we've got contraception, we've got plan B, we've got the day after, we've got to, uh, abortion medicines, we've got all kinds of things that can be done medically. But the religions don't want the doctors to take over, they want to keep it to themselves. Not only that, but I have seen it directly when I was a monk in North Carolina. I saw directly that the school board in Charlotte, North Carolina, absolutely did not want to hear one inch about having a class on morality and ethics in school. Why? Because that belonged to the churches. You can't teach our kids morality. You can't teach them why it's not a good idea to cheat on your test. You can just punish them when they do. But teaching them about it, that's left to the churches. You can't teach ethics. That's the job of the religions. Okay. Well, actually, in reality, the teachings of the Buddha is more of an ethics lesson than anything else. It is a teaching on morality. You can understand that in the sense of the um, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path that winds up with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. It's a moral teaching, but that moral teaching of right effort, oh, excuse me, um, right action, right speech, and right livelihood is the outcome of a mind that is unified and whole and noble. If you don't want anything, you're unlikely to hurt somebody to get it. Okay, so basically all of psychiatric problems that we have in the world are moral issues because of the symptom. They're doing something that society doesn't approve of. If a schizophrenic did whatever he did, but it was actually approved of in the society that he lived in, then he'd be okay. We've actually seen examples of that through anthropology, that everybody did this same thing and the Westerners came and thought this guy was crazy until he found out that everybody in the community does that. 
Okay, so um, this is the the whole quantity. Then is is that a, a mental disorder, or a feeling disorder, or a thought disorder is actually a behavioral disorder, because it can be seen and demonstrated in symptomatic symptomatic symptomologically. <laughs> Get that word out there if I can. <laughs> so. Um, the idea then is, is that if we can clean up the mind so that we don't, that we're satisfied and don't want anything, then we're unlikely to go commit a social poopaw in the process of getting it. And there's many, many different punishments for social poopaws, including, you know, psychiatric care or hardcore prison and all of this kind of realm of a range of things, none of which seems to actually cause uh, an effect that's actually valuable because they're still looking at all the symptoms rather than looking at the actual cause is, is that somebody wants something and they don't have it and they're in dis and they're unhappy and dissatisfied because they can't get what they want. This is the second noble truth. We can also throw in ill will, but it's important to recognize that ill will as well as greed are in fact the same thing. If I want to bring something to me, then I want to push away its absence. If I want to push something away, I want to draw uh, to me its absence. Okay, so this is the way that we understand it. And that, but the behaviors are different in the sense that when we have ill will, we'll distribute anger. And when we're in greedy mode, we'll, um, <clears throat> we'll become kind of a criminal. All right. Now, one time before I had mentioned Eric Byrne with his OK Corral, basically what that means, he says that there is four states. I'm OK versus I'm not okay, and then my relationship to the world. So I'm okay, you're okay, is the win-win position. Very rarely do we have that, because almost always everyone is around in, I'm not okay, but you're okay. But in fact, that's the typical position that we're in. That's the position of the loser. I'm, okay. I'm not okay, but you're okay, because you're a doctor. Or we go and we find people that'll, that will be okay, all right? But then there's the other mind state, and that is, is that I'm not okay and you're not okay. Now, that I'm not okay and you're not okay, that's the place where the criminals or the psychiatric people live, okay? And then the uh, I'm not, uh, I'm okay, but you're not okay, that's definitely the criminal. I'm okay, but but you're not okay, which means I can go take anything I want to from you. So um, they, there's also a reverse in that issue of I'm not okay and you're okay. And that is, is that it creates both a system of helplessness, but it also creates the helper, the person who has to help because they feel bad if they don't help. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, and so they see the person that they have to help 
as their savior in a way. Oh, I'm so glad you came in for my help. My mother was that way. She was a, a professional helper. So um, there's another way of looking at it. And, and in fact, I've been uh, mixing these together in the sense of bringing in the word criminal as opposed to the successful winner who sees other people like himself as okay. But our, t our society already starts us out as you're not okay, you're a kid. And we gain that habit of I'm not okay and many people grow up with it. What means I'm not okay, which means I cannot change, I cannot fix my problems. And Christianity teaches this. It's a major, major tenet in Christianity that you need a Jesus. If you don't have a plastic Jesus on the dashboard of your truck, you're going to run that truck into a tree. It's guaranteed. That's the mindset of Christianity. And where does it come from? Things like original sin. Or who are you to be good? Only God is good. Or except you save Jesus as your savior, you're not going to be saved. Right? So this whole idea is, is that we are raised in our religions to be losers, hoping that the religion is going to fix us. Mm -hmm. Okay? And you know how much religion has influenced our society. So the, the, the religions want you to be a victim so that they can victimize you. Another group would be um, business. Business wants you to be in a state of need so that you will buy their product. And if you don't need it, their job is to convince you that you need it. Yeah, it's really interesting because actually like uh, uh, the point about advertisements, that like advertisement is almost never like talking about what they're actually advertising, but it's creating like an image. Like if only you have this thing, especially then you're going to feel so good. Mm -hmm. Especially the medicine cool. advertised on television with the soft music and the couple, elderly couple, arm in arm. Most elderly couples are arm in arm because they're fighting with each other. <laughs> and they're sitting in a dump. But in this commercial, they're on a beach or on a mountainside or someplace beautiful playing soft music while the, the announcer has to read all of the symptoms, <laughs> the side effects of this. If you listen to what the announcer said, you wouldn't buy that medicine. <laughs> you would not ask your doctor to prescribe it for you. <laughs> There's another group, and that's the education. They take you into first grade. You're a doofus. You're an idiot. You need us education in order to make you a functional human being so you can go get a job and get the stuff that the business people tell you that you need. And then you've got government, the experts, who want to keep you dissatisfied because if you were completely satisfied, you wouldn't vote. And so they have to keep you dissatisfied. The Democrats do it by promising something, the greed side, and the Republicans do it by telling you how bad everything is and how you got to take back America because it was stolen from you. And the immigrants did it. So they promote racism and all of that kind of stuff. And so, in fact, you could say that the government, the education, the religion, and 
business I call the grid. They're out to exploit us as victims. Look how much of the society is in there. And we recognize, wow, well, how, do, how can we get out? The first thing is, is by seeing it, by seeing that all of this societal stuff is intended to make us a victim, especially the religions have tried to prove to us that you're going to remain a victim because you need them to come out of your victimhood. But the teachings of the Buddha is look at what's going on to start waking up to what's happening. And you can figure out that you can come out of this. You can change your mind. You can change the habits. You don't have to feel like a victim anymore. You can feel like a lion. Because you're satisfied and you got what you wanted. And because you got what you wanted, you don't want anything else. And so you're satisfied. So this is the real teaching of the Buddha. And then guess what? That whole point fits everyone. But in fact, the people who are on the ward who want to stay on the ward need to stay crazy just enough to qualify to be on the ward. And so the system actually sets that up. The whole system that we're in is a system that keeps us victims and keeps us crazy. So that means that we each one have to take the right effort to come out of that mentality, to come out of those mind states, to come out of those attitudes into becoming the attitude of a winner. This is the Eightfold Noble Path. Okay. Sati, to wake up. Investigate, number two, right? Viewing, to look at what's going on. To not take, you, <clears throat> the word view is not a good translation because we use the word view like the television program, the view. Mm-hmm. And what it yeah. is, it's about opinions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Viewpoints, attitudes in a way, worldviews, okay? And the Buddha says that there are both kinds, wrong views and right views. But those kind of right views are ordinary. The noble is a verb, not a noun. To view, to look, to see, not to jump to conclusions that in fact, Uh, a viewpoint is a conclusion you've already reached and therefore no more investigation is needed. And so we're not having any views. We're dispensing with views. Now, guess what? All those rights, rules, and rituals were nothing but views. Things about shoulds, woulds, coulds, had tos, um, ought to do it this way, um, punishments if you don't, all of this kind of stuff is built into it. And our society is woefully missing on the Buddha's way. And that is instead of if there is wrongdoing, instead of punishing it, we have it as an opportunity for rehabilitation. But our prisons, for instance, and our psychiatric communities generally don't do a lot of rehabilitation for wrongdoing, we punish them instead. They're locked up or given more meds 
or some um, attendants, if they can, will actually hurt the patients to punish them, to stop them from doing what they're doing. Because we don't have a model of rehabilitation to find remorse for bad feelings so that we can uh, watch for those uh, thoughts that led to those feelings that led to those actions. And that's the rehabilitation. And so uh, it can only be done one on one. It's not a, this is possibly the part of the reason why big retreat, meditation retreats don't work is because um, the lack of this one-on-one -on -one relationship uh, that a, a, a good psychiatrist could, but a good psychiatrist is so rare that he doesn't have much time for an individual client. That in fact, sometimes an issue may take several hours to work out and all the psychiatrist has is 15 minutes. Yeah, and that's true. Usually all the uh, sort of, you know, psychotherapy and psychological work is uh, is given to the psychologists and the psychiatrist just, you know, sort of manages medications and asks about symptoms and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I've been involved in getting the psychiatrist uh, working closely with a psychologist so the two of us could team up on the psychiatrist to get him to change the diagnosis so that he changed the medication. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that story sometime. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, the place where we can begin to see is, is that each one of us has to start watching the thoughts that we have and start watching to see what kind of feelings that those thoughts create. Because it's the feelings that then motivate us into action. In other words, if you have an intellectual, oh, that's not a good idea, that's not enough to act on it. You have to feel like it's a really big deal. It makes me feel really badly enough to get up and go do something about it. And so we can begin to use that kind of thing with with practice of meditation. Uh, I'll talk to you about it later, but one of the, the things that I recommend to some students is, is to use your chair as kind of a proper and anchor for your meditation practice so that every time you get up out of your cozy chair, you 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 reflect. You don't get up. Most people, when they get up out of a chair, they get up to go someplace. Mm -hmm. And so we go from the sitting to the walking posture. Mm -hmm. and what I recommend is for the students to start intentionally going from the sitting to the standing posture mm -hmm. and stand there just long enough to figure out, really, why did I get up out of my comfortable chair? Why am I going someplace? What do I want? And then we go. This is a, a, a very good quality to help us to wake up. Why am I leaving? Because most of us are so frantic, uh, we want so many things that we're not even uh, mindful of when we get up and go someplace. So we're not aware of our body's behavior because we weren't paying attention to the thoughts that we have anyway. And so there's this waking up process to start thinking about or looking at 
What thoughts do I have? Are these thoughts going to motivate me to do something? Or am I just drooling? <laughs> or couldn't I, in fact, have more wholesome thoughts than just to sit here and be happy? Everything is okay. Everything is fine. Nothing needs to be done. But our society has 10,000 things that need to be done by you. But now we can see we've got a choice about that. We can choose what we want to do. We've had a choice all along, but most of us don't have a choice. We've got a to-do list instead. And so we need to examine this to-do list. And the examination generally has a scratch to it. <laughs> I've examined that one. <laughs> I didn't do it. I just decided that I didn't need to do it. And so this is how we begin to look at it, is to see that much of the stuff that we do is irrelevant to life anyway. And yet we feel driven to go around doing stuff. What is the drive? The feelings. The feelings drive us. And, and guess what? Generally, we are driven by those feelings as ignorantly as horses are. There's no real driver there. There's no frontal cortex going on. There's no what Beric Byrne calls adult in the room. <laughs> it's all dialogue between the, 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 the parent ego state giving us orders. And then the child with his feelings has those feelings that motivate the body to go do something. And what we're trying to practice, or we actually are practicing within the teachings of the Buddha, is to bring that frontal cortex into play so that it looks at that dialogue between the parent and the child and begin to change that dialogue from a critical set of rules into the nurturing. Every one of us that made it to adulthood got a bit of nurturing when we were an infant. With no nurturing, an infant will die. That they've had many experiments with that. One of them was having milk available to infant, I think, uh, 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 monkeys. But then when they put a, um, a metal skeleton with fur around it and had tits, those babies would survive with a mommy that was nothing more than a uh, mannequin. OK, so we have to have that kind of nurturing. We have to have some sort of bonding as a baby. But luckily enough, most women have that bonding and they will bond also with the infant. Then now we have this bonding going on. OK, and we miss that bonding when we are raised because mommy is going to see this child as four, five, six years old. He's not going to have the same bonding that we have with a tender infant. I can see that now with the puppy, that we had a puppy that we really, really tenderly loved when it was uh, four weeks old. Now that it's eight weeks old, we're beginning to say, oh, time for potty training. <laughs> 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 okay, so you can see how that happens. And then we put the kids to school, put them to work, and they lose that nurturing. And we have a longing for that nurturing the whole rest of our lives. What we need to do is to bring it back again by nurturing ourselves, by turning off of that critical uh, parent ego state and start nurturing ourselves with wholesome thoughts, 
Everything's going to be all right. You've got this made. No worries, no problems. Poop where you want to. Just don't <laughs> leave a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is the actual teachings of the Buddha is to wake up and look at what we're doing and we can put it into the psychiatric um, understanding from, or at least the psychological understanding about the parent, adult, and the child and changing the parent from a critical parent into a nurturing parent so that the child feels safe, secure, and comfortable, and that will lead to the feeling of satisfaction. But we have to practice that over and over and over again, because now for the past 30 years or more, we've been practicing criticism. Go get the job done. You'll be a good boy only if you perform. That there is no such thing as unconditional love. All love is conditional after birth. After about two years of unconditional love, it's time to potty train. <laughs> and it and it goes downhill after that. And we don't have that nurturing. So we have to build that nurturing quality back up. So this is one of the things then that a really good psychologist and psychiatrist will do well, they'll turn that nurturing on that they've developed for themselves onto the client so that the client feels trusted, feels uh, that they can trust the, the therapist so that they can uh, make friends with them and bond and feel nurtured by the therapist. And so most therapists can't do that because they don't have the ability, they've lost that skill. The skill we were born with, we've lost it. Just like young children, you know, that are raised, uh, a child from birth is raised in a household that has multiple languages, he'll wind up being able to pick up a third and a fourth and a fifth language fairly easy. If a child is raised in a household that has only one language, then by the time he's 12 years old, languages become extraordinarily difficult. Something happens in the brain. When we're really, really young, we pick up stuff so fast. And we picked up a lot of garbage <laughs> that needs to be reevaluated and thrown back out. Because when we're really, when we're little kids, we are delusional about all kinds of things. And we keep those delusions and we repeat them over and over and over again. And one of the delusions that we have is, is that you're not good enough. You can't fix that. The old joke, this is a southern joke. Tommy, get away from that wheelbarrow. You don't know nothing about machinery. Wheelbarrow. <laughs> but that's how we treat our kids. We want things to be safe, and so we teach them to not experiment, to not play. And so we lose our ability to play. But when nothing matters anymore and everything's a ball, then everything's a toy to play with. And so we can turn that society that we're in from that <laughs> that grab that we were talking about, the government and the education and the religion and the uh, uh, the business, we can see that that's out there, but it's just a toy. Not my problem. Something to deal with, and I can deal with it handily because I'm a lion. I can handle that. Society, ha, nothing to it. Just a bunch of unhappy people, that's all. <laughs> 
And so this is basically the teaching of the Buddha, but you can see how it does fit directly into the profession that you're pursuing. So do you have any questions about this? Not really. Huh? Do you think that this is of value to you? Sure. All right. Well, one of the important points is that it has to be just like music. In fact, medical school. You can't read one medical book one time and get the value out of it. You've got to read it over and over again. If you're going to learn the bones of the body, there's what, 206 of them? And they've all got a name, and you got to know the name. you got to rehearse this stuff. you yeah. got to get it down. Okay. And some of them have many parts as well. Like the hip mm -hmm. bone has 40 different parts to it. Oh, but the hip bone is connected to the leg bone. Or is yeah. it the arm? Never mind, I've heard that one. <laughs> so the, um, the rehearsal is the important quality. We call that meditation, but basically it's rehearsing to remember, to look at what we're thinking and to change those thoughts into more wholesome thoughts. And we practice that over and over and over and over again. That's the practice so that we wind up having wholesome thoughts and everything's okay. No problems. And we need more doctors who have that kind of attitude. I've, I actually have several doctors and, and psychologists uh, uh, as, as students and they're they're my favorite. <laughs> Engineers I'm really good with too, and musicians are also I have a love for. But psychologists, psychiatrists, because they already are in the profession that can do the most good if they had the teachings available to them of the Buddha. That there is not. The way to look at it is, is that we're all stuck in dukkha. We don't need these diagnostic codes because those are just descriptions of the bad behavior we're in because we don't know how to think straight. That we all have a thinking feeling disorder. And we can all come out of it. But it takes practice. And then we can do it. And everything's okay. But we have to remember that and practice it over and over again. Everything's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're both winners here. And so that's the way of dealing with people that most psychologists or psychiatrists will deal with him. I mean, you are locked up. There must be something wrong with you <laughs> kind of mentality that we have with the people who are in there and to where, in fact, we've already proven this nose on the second floor there because they figured out that this is a pretty gig, pretty good gig. <laughs> They're smarter than the psychologist. <laughs> So thank you so much. I hope to see you again soon. And we'll start talking about the actual practice. But today has been a, the first conversation we had was all about psychology and whatnot. Now we're beginning to see that psychology and the teaching of the Buddha do the same thing. We just got an inside hang on it. 
Yeah, it's interesting because like uh, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy kind of, uh, you know, emphasizes the same connection that thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behaviors. But for some reason, they uh, it doesn't like put the, it doesn't fully understand the ramifications of that. It's just like, you know, changing some attitude here, changing some attitude there. But like, there's like a lot of stuff that's, I guess, seen as like just human, like, yeah, of course we suffer because of this reason or that reason. And so it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really appreciate the simplicity and the uh, ramifications of and what it is actually saying. That's the part that they're missing often is the issue of repetitive. Mm-hmm. In fact, the guy can go into the psychologist and spend 45 minutes in there and get a huge amount of information and a whole lot of good advice. But what is he going to do with it during the week? Because he hasn't been uh, given the instructions, go practice this, go practice this, go do this over and over and over again. Psychologists are often like having a piano student that doesn't practice between his lessons. How much music is a a piano teacher going to teach his student when all he gets is when he's with her because he doesn't have a piano at home to practice? What's the point? Okay, well, psychologists are exactly the same way. We got to practice this, to practice, to change our mind, to practice, to take, to remember, to look, and to change the mind over and over again, which begins to change our attitude into becoming no longer the victim in life, becoming the winner, because we can and see that we can control our own mind. We're the boss here. We're the lion. But that lion is so happy and so comfortable that his standards of morality are extremely high because he doesn't do things to hurt people to get what he wants because he doesn't want anything. And so in a way, the teaching of the Buddha is a moral issue because psychology and psychiatry are moral issues. And the religions failed Tremendously at their moral obligation. So the psychologists and psychiatrists had to be invented to take over the problems that religion surely does not know how to handle. And so I give you the teaching of the Buddha, and now we can have a generation of psychologists and psychiatrists that really have a value. The whole industry is still in diapers in a way. It's got a lot of growing up to do. Neuroscience is really helping too, to actually figure out what's really going on inside of this noggin that we're carrying around. <laughs> so anyway, I'll jawbone forever. Let me let me finish now. We'll see you later. This is good. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.